0: y
1: and power collide in silicon valley and beyond this is bloomberg technology with emily chang
2: I'm Emily in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, stock slide on a Bloomberg Scoop that Apple plans to slow hiring and spending. We've got the inside details on how the iPhone maker plans to deal with the downturn. Plus, Netflix says its latest season of Stranger Things was even bigger than expected. But can Netflix deliver in its earnings report this week? After a dismal start to the year, Stranger Things have happened. And Bitcoin rallies jumping as much as 7% to hit $22,000 for the first time in weeks. What's driving the crypto rebound later this hour? We'll get to all of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at the market. Stocks took a leg down after a Bloomberg scoop that Apple plans to slow hiring and spending, cutting back on a normally aggressive R&D budget. Bloomberg's Taylor Riggs here to walk us through the day. Taylor. Emily, and you were so right.
3: Equity markets were green on the screen, and then about 10 minutes before 2 o'clock when I went on air, all of this started to unravel with that great headline that you just mentioned. And so, of course, you end up lower on the day, and you see there, of course, a Nasdaq 100 off about 9 tenths of 1%, certainly the big underperformer on that big Apple news. I know that you'll circle back and get to that in just a moment. You have a 10 year yield as well that does continue to climb. So recession fears, at least not today, more about some of those inflationary reflationary growth stories. I want to change up the board because I wanted to talk about IBM as well that came just after uh, the closing bell here. You're off about 4%. Emily, I guess overall the top line numbers look good. They didn't really mention a ton of headwinds when it came to the dollar. But I still think some concerns here when it comes to how we're thinking about all the tech spend that you mentioned and how we're thinking about these companies navigating some of these recessionary challenges that are maybe coming up on us. Finally, of course, let's just broaden out and take a look at some of the index. Individual stock sectors. I know that you mentioned Netflix. Now after hours, you're up about one percent. Stranger Things, too scary for me. I can't watch it. (laughs) Alphabet, twenty for one stock split. That I could do any day. We could talk about that all day long. Disney. There is a great story as well that we talked about. I think getting nine billion dollars in upfront ads, forty percent of those online. And so Disney, of course, as we sort of push forward to the uh, sort of um, uh, uh, earnings results that we're going to get, of course, starting with Netflix and the streaming environment. Finally, Apple. I mean, just unbelievable, the story of the day. You're off 2%. I think one of the biggest one-day declines that we've had now going
2: back in in a few weeks here, Emily. All right, Taylor. Thank you. Now, as Taylor mentioned, Apple plans to slow hiring and spending growth next year in some divisions. This, according to to Bloomberg sources, Apple is still planning an aggressive product launch schedule in 2023, including potentially a new mixed reality headset. But this news about typically recession resistant Apple taking investors by surprise. Mark German broke the story and joins us now. So, Mark, what exactly have you learned about Apple's plans?
4: Emily, thank you for having me. We learned that the company going into fiscal 2023 is taking a more cautious approach to its investing and spending when it comes to hiring. So you're gonna see upon some departures over the next year or so, normal attrition, maybe Apple won't fill some of those roles in, in order to save a little bit money, money and be cautious there. You're probably gonna see them have headcount even in many teams instead of upgrading their headcount, maybe between five and 10 and 15%. You're also going to see them spending a little bit less money in certain divisions as well. This is all in preparation for this looming recession we've talked about many times in this economic downturn that people are concerned about, coupled with inflation.
2: So uh, talk to us about why the market is so surprised by this or concerned by this, given that Apple, you know, weathered the pandemic pretty well, also kind of a bellwether for consumer sentiment.
4: I think that's exactly right because Apple is a bellwether, right? I think that the market and analysts and people who invest trust Apple to make decisions ahead of time. If you remember when COVID-19 started to happen in the beginning of 2020, Apple was one of the first to sort of take a stand and begin closing their stores and begin putting measures in and begin talking about that potential impact, right? So Apple has shown that it has good insight and good research to understand when economic situations are going to happen. So I think the market knows that and traded based on that. At the same time, I don't think it's hugely surprising given that you've seen Meta and Tesla and Amazon and Microsoft all make similar moves. The difference is is that Apple is going to try to keep that internal. Instead of Tim Cook sending out a memo to the entire company detailing their plans for 2022 and 2023 when it comes to this economic downturn, they are not going to announce that publicly, right? That's why we're reporting it based on sources, just like you've seen other companies do, right? apple doesn't seem to appear to believe that they're going to have a major impact on consumers because of this or employees you're probably not going to see layoffs here you're probably not going to see major changes to their product pipeline and their launch plans Uh, like you mentioned i am still expecting the announcement of the first major new product category in eight years a mixed reality headset to happen sometime in 2023 there's also going to be big iPhone updates next year, big Apple Watch updates, a larger iPad, many new Macs. So there's a lot in store for next year. The company still wants to get out to consumers.
2: Meantime, Mark, there's uh, another story you're following: Apple being sued over pay and antitrust violations. Explain to us what's happening here.
4: This one's a long time coming. So. Basically, the way the iPhone works with Apple Pay is that Apple is the only company that can have tap-to-pay software on the phone. So you know how you wanna go to Whole Foods or another place and you tap your phone on the reader to make a payment? That's only through Apple Pay. So that means that Square, PayPal, Chase, Amex, any financial provider, you name it, they're not able to develop their own application uh, in order to use the NFC chip, near-field communications chip that allows tap-to-pay on the iPhone. So now you see this consortium of payment companies through this class action lawsuit to benefit consumers, right? That is happening now. They're upset that Apple is keeping that feature exclusive to its own service and then charging what they say are higher than normal rates uh, for consumers to use that, and those rates obviously being passed on uh, to the payment processing companies.
2: Okay. Mark Gurman, we'll keep the scoops coming. Thanks so much, Uh, as always, for joining us. Coming up, will the metaverse really change life as we know it? My next guest says yes, indeed, and big time. He will tell us how next. This is Bloomberg. couple of decades today's internet will undergo a multi-trillion dollar transformation to an interconnected 3d virtual world currently known as the metaverse or so some tech futurists say think virtual malls where we shop play work and more all under the same roof in his new book the metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. A co-managing partner Matthew Ball offers a glimpse into this new reality. Matthew joins us now from LA. So Matthew, the question is when so much of the progress that has been made on the so-called metaverse so far seems to be pretty basic. When are our lives going to be quote-unquote revolutionized?
5: Well, so we should keep in mind that these technological transformations do take decades. I'm glad that you emphasize that. The first wireless cell phone call in 1973, the first data-based wireless network 91, smartphones 92, the early 2000s, we get the first consumer media services on mobile devices, Blackberries thereafter, the iPhone, some way through the next decade, most of the world was running on mobile and cloud services. What's clear now is that the advent of real-time 3D, as we talk about it in industrial applications, the advent of XR in live patient surgery, and the fact that hundreds of millions of people, typically under the ages of 25s, are all living in 3D worlds today.
2: So not you or me yet, no offense. Talk to us then about how this is going to change our daily lives. For example, you're know, you you joining us now remotely. Would it seem like you were here in the studio in this new world?
5: That's certainly one element. We see this in particular emphasized by Meta where they talk about the idea of co-location and presence in virtual space. But in some instances, we will just be using some of the devices we have right now, but we might be doing those in 3D, what we call volumetric displays or holography. You and I might be sitting thousands of miles apart looking at a screen, but the actual presentation would be in 3D. And studies show that that has remarkable improvements on retention, engagement, nonverbal forms of communication.
2: Now, you've had your Metaverse ETF now going for several months. You've got you know names like Meta in there, not surprising. Also Snap, which I found interesting because Snap's view of the Metaverse is so different from Meta is where, you know, Evan Spiegel has called Mark Zuckerberg's vision so hypothetical and Snap is betting more on, you know, more sort of augmented reality over real physical reality. And today Snap unveiled a new web version of Snap, which almost seems like it's going backwards. How do we square these two visions?
5: The way that we square it is by ignoring the term altogether. It's helpful to talk about a new generation of the internet, but you'll find that because there's no concrete definition, some believe that it fundamentally requires crypto, others have VR-centric beliefs, others have augmented reality-centric beliefs. Under the classical definition where we're talking about real-time 3D, all of those are likely to fit in one way, shape or form. Evan might talk about augmented reality lenses. Mark Zuckerberg might talk about a virtual world with all of your other vision cut off. That's still 3D. And they're still going to interconnect in some way, shape or form.
2: Now, let's talk about how this changes the world of streaming. You know, you were a longtime former Amazon studio executive. how, How does this change the way we watch and what we watch and how?
5: So this is a great example of the fact that we're already sitting in parts of this world today. Disney, of course, produced most of The Mandalorian using a game engine, a real-time 3D simulation engine. That meant that they could create the perfect sunset. They could hold that sunset in place. They can pull out the entirety of that virtual set, reshoot it in five years, or make it available to you or an on our Peloton, on a video game console, in virtual or augmented reality that's one of the ways in which we're going to start to see entertainment change you've seen that the match ceo now comes from zynga and he in his new role is talking about the idea that you might be able to traipse Tatooine on a date rather than just play games from a smartphone
2: now, Netflix earnings are coming up. We've been talking a lot about the success of Stranger Things, which is not necessarily a surprise, even though it's scarier and more gruesome than the last three seasons. I'm still watching it. Um, what would you bet is going to happen here? Do you think they're going to buck the trend that we saw earlier this year? Or are we going to see a slow uh, degradation in the number of subscribers for a while?
5: It's clear by all streaming benchmarks that Stranger Things season four was as exceptional as the fans hoped, and in excess of what Netflix did. But also third-party analytics show that a lot of the subscriber additions are weaker than we would have hoped for, and in particular, churn looks worse. Antenna, a subscription analytics and data company, shows that Netflix now ranks second last in terms of subscriber retention after 30 days from sign-up. They're also at a four-year high for the overall services churn and retention. And so the numbers basically say that even if it was a pretty strong quarter for ads, the churn elevation is likely to offset them and more.
2: Lord of the Rings, uh, the new series, Jeff Bezos tweeted out the trailer last week. Do you think it's gonna be a-, a mega hit like Stranger Things has been for Netflix?
5: Stranger Things came out in 2016 and it's still breaking record seven years later. Defining by that degree, Is going to take some time but do i think that it's going to premiere to outstanding viewership globally that it's going to cover the press that it's going to be one of the most significant things that amazon overall does in 22 absolutely
2: so uh, what's your take on the overall tech market dynamics you know we've got this negative news out from apple that they're going to slow down spending growth that they're going to slow down hiring apple you know, long considered a bellwether for consumer sentiment. Uh Are you taking that as a signal, a bad signal, uh, for the rest of big tech for the foreseeable future?
5: It's not encouraging, certainly. When you take a look at how many other creators, founders, products and services rely on the iPhone and the incremental improvements from every device refresh, none of that's good. But we're seeing this industry-wide ...separate from Apple, the video game industry was down 19% year over year. Last month, year to date, it's trending at 11% year over year. And so we're looking at a, you know, broad situation where consumer electronics, entertainment, leisure, high-end GPUs from NVIDIA are all getting compressed. The drop in the crypto markets is exacerbating that on a demographic basis.
2: All right, uh, Matthew, always good to have you here and excited about your new book, The Metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything out tomorrow, wherever you get your books. Matthew Ball of Apillion. Thank you. Coming up, could Elon Musk's bid for Twitter somehow be good for Twitter's relationship with China? Our next guest thinks so, Strategy Risks founder and CEO Isaac Stonefish, is back to talk to us about the future of China-U.S. tech relations and more. This is Bloomberg. The biggest maker of batteries for electric cars is considering at least two locations in Mexico for a manufacturing plan. China's contemporary Amperex technology could be positioning itself to help Tesla and Ford grow their EV market share in North America. The potential sites are near the Texas border, according to Bloomberg sources, and the company is planning to invest as much as $5 billion in this project. Meantime, China is facing a slew of new challenges as its economy buckles amidst stringent COVID-0 policies. There are ongoing protests at housing projects, for example, in more than 50 cities, with residents refusing to pay their mortgage payments. And typically vibrant Hong Kong is struggling to recruit and retain new talent. So how will this all impact the tech sector? I want to bring in Isaac Stonefish, the founder and CEO of Strategy Risks, that works with companies to assess their risk exposure to China, and thank you. It's been, it's been a while, Isaac, so good to have you back here on the show. I mean, when you look at China right now, is it still a good place to put your money? I think it
6: depends what better options you have, and certainly there's a lot of other places in the world, a lot of other industries, a lot of other sectors that have more minimal China exposure. I think for so long, people have been mispricing the risk of investments in China, and now that the risks are so much more clear, they're able to step back and say, oops.
2: Right. Is the center of gravity in the tech scene moving? Is it moving from, you know, Beijing to Hong Kong or from Hong Kong to Singapore, for example, where conditions are more predictable?
6: I think a lot of people in the tech scene like the idea of it being decentralized, especially the more Bitcoiny of the mm-hmm. folks. I think the China certainly is the center of the tech scene in Asia, but it's really too early to say whether or not they can ever have a global tech scene. I mean, Chinese entrepreneurs have long succeeded despite the Chinese Communist Party and despite the conditions of China, as opposed to because of. And as their space grows narrower and narrower, I think we are going to see more of an exodus of talent to other parts of the world. And do
2: you think the COVID policies will have a long-term impact? Like, will this be an inflection point?
6: I think it definitely could be. There's a metaphor going around China of the guy stepping on someone else's neck and a lot of people going around thinking, okay, well, how do we get this guy to breathe? What can we do? What can we do? And Mm. the solution is take your foot off the neck. Mm. So it's been a long period of strangulation of China's economy. There's huge emotional damages of the cruel, lockdown that they've had, and yeah, I think that'll have really long-term effects.
2: Meantime, you've got companies like TikTok, for example, just continuing to thrive, and obviously, you know, parent company is ByteDance, and do you think that U.S. tech companies, U.S. social media companies will ever be able to catch up?
6: I think they will. I, I think they certainly might, and I think the The game that TikTok is playing is how can it seem as un-Chinese as possible in the United States? And the more it gets tarred with its association with the Chinese Communist Party, the better it will be for Meta and Google and Microsoft and, frankly, even Oracle.
2: So, you have some interesting uh, analysis on this whole Elon Musk Twitter debate in that you think that Elon Musk's potential involvement in Twitter or, you know, the drama in general could be good for Twitter's relationship with China, which is interesting given that Twitter has been blocked in China since 2009 or 2010 when I was living there. um, What do you mean?
6: Musk, for someone who's such a free speech avatar, has this massive blind spot when it comes to China and refuses to criticize China or the Chinese Communist Party in a way that's especially egregious for someone who's so open and no holds barred With so many other people. And it feels like employees of Twitter will read between the lines or will listen to directives that say, okay, we don't need to be so aggressive in labeling uh, Chinese accounts linked to state media. We don't need to push back against this kind of information. We don't need to see this as misinformation. And hey, Tesla's in China. Why can't Twitter be in China? Mm. And make a lot of the ethical sacrifices that Musk has made vis-a-vis Tesla in China.
2: Interesting. So you think if Elon Musk takes over Twitter and does the deal, as he promised, that it could be an entree for Twitter back into China?
6: I think it certainly can be. Now, I don't think that's necessarily going to be good for Twitter's bottom line. It'll certainly change the way the social media platform works. I think we see Tesla on one side, which is heavily exposed to China. We have SpaceX on the other side, which is heavily hived off from China. You have Musk and other board members linking them. And I think Twitter will fit somewhere in between, but I think it's possible that they might fit closer to the Tesla model than the SpaceX model.
2: And how optimistic are you about the future of Tesla in China, especially given all of these broader economic concerns?
6: I think it depends on how far Musk is willing to bend. And there's a lot of concerns in China about Tesla as a national security threat because of all the data that it collects. Mm -hmm. And I assume that Musk will be very happy to continue yielding to the Chinese Communist Party with sharing data, with doing things like opening a showroom in Xinjiang, the region in Northwest China, where upwards of a million Muslims have been in concentration camps. I think we'll continue to see similar behavior. I think that, frankly, the thing that would be most likely to change it if Musk decides to be more heavily involved with politics in the United States and thinks, well, this is just too much of a liability for me, but I don't see that as very likely.
2: This along with concerns about TikTok and how TikTok handles data of its users and whether or not it's shared with the Chinese government. What's your take?
6: no question that it it can be shared with the Chinese government. There's no way, I think what people need to understand, and this (laughs) transitions to another even darker topic, but if the U.S. and China go to war over Taiwan or islands in the East Sea or the South Sea or Vietnam or any other country in the region, all of Chinese companies and U.S. companies will be viewed by some as enemy combatants. Mm -hmm. And the threat with TikTok is less that... Someone's using TikTok in New Jersey and the Chinese Communist Party is watching that in real time. But the way that that data, that information, that location tracking can be weaponized if Beijing so chooses.
2: Dark, indeed. Uh, Thank you for taking us there uh, and uh, for joining us here in the studio. Isaac Stonefish of Strategy Risk. Always good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Speaking of Twitter, uh, some headlines just crossing now about Twitter's dispute with Elon Musk. Twitter dismissing Musk's complaints that he doesn't have enough information about spam and bot accounts. Twitter saying the complaints are a irrelevant, quote, sideshow, urging a judge to hold a trial as soon as possible over his proposed cancellation of this deal. We're expecting That hearing, the first hearing in this legal saga, Tuesday. We'll be back with more of Bloomberg Technology after this quick break. This is Bloomberg. the major success of the latest season of Stranger Things. Netflix investors have been bracing for subscriber losses. Shares are down more than 60 percent this year as the streaming space gets more competitive and inflation has forced consumers to be more selective. But shares jump to kick off the week ahead of earnings. Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw covers all things streaming for us. So why are shares climbing ahead of what's expected to be a not so great
0: report?
7: optimism that things will be better than expected you know Netflix had forecast that they would lose 2 million subscribers in the quarter which would be their worst quarter ever uh it would also mean that for the year they would have lost 2.2 million I think there's some optimism based on on reporting and and third-party analysis and just the the kind of obvious success of of Stranger Things that maybe they'll lose Five hundred thousand or a million instead of two million. I also think that, you know, the last time around Netflix reported earnings, they threw a lot of information at people and they've done a better job over the last couple of months of trying to explain what some of that means.
2: You know, there's been some talk about, you know, changing the the binge watching strategy, releasing episodes weekly, for example. Do you think there's a chance that could happen? I mean, I guess stranger things have happened, right? Pun intended.
7: There yeah, they're already starting it uh, with with the release of Stranger Things and, and La Casa de Papel and Ozark. They've they've gone with this batch approach where they'll release a season in two installments, say, instead of all at once. And I think you'll see a lot more of that, or maybe in in three. I don't think you'll ever see Netflix, or at least not anytime soon, go with kind of the weekly model that's been popularized in a lot of TV. But they are seeing a benefit in say, releasing four to six episodes at a time uh, and then spacing it out because it reduces the number of people who are canceling if they know that they have the show that they like, that they're gonna need to stick with Netflix for at least two or three months.
2: Did, you know, they did that with Ozark too. Has it worked? I mean, I, as a viewer, I found it incredibly frustrating.
7: Well, that frustration is why they haven't done it until now because they've conditioned <laughs> all these people to just get to watch it all at once. I think what you see, based on some of the third-party data, at least, and and on the the data that Netflix puts out, is there is a secondary spike in viewership. And that seems like a good thing if your desire is to make sure that people are coming back to Netflix on a regular basis.
2: You know, there's also some reporting about Hulu growing more than even Disney Plus itself. And, of course, Disney is a big stakeholder in Hulu. What are these clues telling us about what consumers want and what services are, you know, going to trump them all.
7: Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing to keep in mind on that Hulu report is that it's specific to the U.S. Uh, and so, and it's from a, a, a third-party data. So D- Hulu may be doing better than Disney Plus right now in the in the U.S. Disney Plus is still larger than Hulu by a lot, especially worldwide. Hulu is only U.S. only, and sort of the question looming over Disney is is are they gonna end up buying Comcast out of it and folding it into Disney Plus? Do they wanna keep it independent? That being said, Hulu's been on a really good streak of programming um, and is one of the reasons why you've seen Netflix stumble a bit is these other services, namely Disney Plus, HBO Max and Apple TV Plus, and to some extent Hulu, have given consumers a lot of alternatives online. And I think it used to be that Netflix was the default for most people if they wanted to to watch TV, at least if they wanted to stream. And that's just not the case anymore.
2: Meantime, you've got Amazon coming out with Lord of the Rings, you know, long anticipated. Who stands to gain the most from, you know, a potential decline in Netflix subscribers? Is it Disney Plus? Is it Amazon?
7: It'll probably be spread across a number of players. You know, Disney has already benefited a bunch and, and hopes to continue to do so. HBO Max has been in a, a really good groove with programming and has grown at a steady clip. You know, Paramount uh, is is actually one of the fastest growing services, at least in the U.S. You know, Amazon's been at it for as long as Netflix and has really you know b- been a second or third fiddle to them the whole time. They are trying to, to kind of get their act together. Lord of the Rings is the biggest swing, and they certainly hope that that works. At the same time, you've got another tech giant in, in Apple that some would argue has done a better job of programming over the last couple of years.
2: All right. Well, lots to keep watching with Netflix results out later this week. Our very own Lucas Shaw. Thank you, Lucas, as always, for joining us. Well, next to streaming, one of the industries, perhaps most profoundly changed by the pandemic has been healthcare, accelerating the progress of telemedicine and more. Able Partners is a women-led investment fund supporting early stage brands that focus on making the daily lives of consumers happier and healthier. And they just ran a study on how Gen Z in particular is navigating the new complexities of healthcare. Founding partner, Amanda Ilian joins me now. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. So talk to us about this report and what surprised you most about Gen Z.
8: Well, thanks for having me, Emily. I think the most surprising finding by far is the fact that this generation, Gen Z, they might not wanna go back to the office full time, but they seem to wanna see their healthcare providers in person. When we asked them their preferred communication method for their healthcare providers, they chose in person communication well above any other form of communication. And looked at another way, we asked them their top criteria when choosing a healthcare provider, and they chose convenient location as their top criteria, and telehealth capabilities were actually last in the survey. So when you look at the amount of funding, yeah. So does that mean we sh- you should be less t- investing less in telehealth? Well, I think when we dig a little deeper into those findings, we find that the preference is really for a hybrid solution. So while they, they want to meet their healthcare provider in person, When we ask them how they want to how often they want to hear back from their provider the majority of respondents expect to hear back from providers within a few hours when they have a question or a concern so they're really looking for the convenience of digital channels while still having the opportunity to make an in-person connection so while i think it's true that the telehealth revolution has been oversold for this generation there is a role for it. And I think when you start looking at specific specialties, perhaps mental health care, there could be even a larger role.
2: So healthcare care is operating in not just a post-COVID, but also now a post-Roe world. What are the trends that stem from that?
8: But when we think about the impact of the Dobbs decision, that obviously has the largest impact directly on providers of telehealth abortions, and they've seen increase in demand as well as increased risks and liabilities as a result of that decision. But when you think about the broader impact, it actually has the potential to make employment and investment more or less appealing in any number of states. So if you're in Austin or Miami, I think you you have a recruiting disadvantage at this point. In our survey, we found that nearly half of Gen Z women were somewhat or very unlikely to take a job in a state that had restricted abortion rights, and that number was 30% for men. So when you're an employer and you're looking at potentially 40% of your future workforce not wanting to work in your state, it doesn't matter where you stand on the political divide, That's just a business decision. And so I I think the secondary impact of that is we will see further move towards permanent work from home policies and companies that are able to optimize a distributed workforce will continue to have advantages.
2: So how is all of this impacting where you uh, as an investor are putting your money?
8: Well, at ABLE Partners, we're very focused on a concept that we call the wellness gap. And that's something that we define as the disconnect between measures of economic well-being. So GDP per capita, that has gone up and to the right on graphs. Uh, Consumers have had more money in their pockets. But if you were to plot on that same graph, measures of physical and emotional well-being, those have been stagnant to down, uh, particularly over the past two decades. And that's created a literal gap in the graph. So we're most interested in funding the companies that are looking to close that gap. And we have a secondary lens that we like to look at of stigma, where we feel like conditions or communities have been underserved because of historical stigmas. And we know that that often creates large market opportunities.
2: The wellness gap. Interesting. All right. Thank you so much for joining us to tell us all about it. Able Partners founding partner, Amanda Illion. Appreciate it. Coming up, Bitcoin and altcoins rallying after the June crypto wipeout. We're going to talk about why next. This is Bloomberg. (laughs) Time now for our crypto reported Bitcoin rallying to start the week at one point trading above $22,000 for the first time since early June and testing the upper bound of the tight range where it's been stuck for the last month. And smaller tokens or altcoins also having a good day even outperforming Bitcoin. You can see here Ether extending a rally that began last week after developers of the Ethereum blockchain gave a target for their software update projected to lower the network's Energy usage, the long-awaited merge, and other coins like Avalanche, Polygon, Cardano, all in the green. I want to talk about all this and more with Bloomberg's Hannah Miller. So, Hannah, first of all, why are we seeing Bitcoin and other coins rallying right now?
9: Yeah, well, there's been some space in between, uh, you know, this rally here and the freezing of withdrawals at Celsius, which we saw a huge downturn in price um, for cryptocurrencies uh, in mid-June. And Bitcoin is, you know, sparking traders' interest. There is hope that maybe they would Bitcoin will break out of this $19,000 to $22,000 range. And for Ether in particular, among all coins, news of the merge that it can happen as soon as September uh, has really sparked interest in Ethereum again.
2: And yet we had a guest last week that called Ethereum a giant Ponzi scheme. What do you make of that?
9: Yeah, there's always gonna be skepticism uh, in this industry. There are people who are concerned about the safety and the risks that, you know, DeFi poses to investors. Um, So with, especially in light of like the, what's happening with Celsius and what's happening with Three Arrows Capital and the freezing of withdrawals at various crypto lenders, this has put a lot of people on edge within the industry.
2: Let's talk about that. There are some new developments when it comes to Three Arrows, this, you know, big crypto hedge fund, as well as the Celsius bankruptcy and you know all of this emits calls for more regulation
9: yes uh, we have a fuller picture of what's happening here with the collapse of three hours capital Um, we got a more detailed list today of creditors and it's a pretty interesting list there are some really big names in the industry on there like digital currency group and also one of the co-founders of three hours capital's wife actually has a uh, has a claim in. So it's pretty interesting to see how interconnected this industry is. and we're still getting details emerging about uh, Celsius, about euro's capital and it, we're still untangling sort of this web here of what's happening.
2: All right, Bloomberg's Hannah Miller, Hannah, thank you so much for all of those updates. Speaking of distressed crypto firms, the rise and fall of companies like Celsius and others has sparked calls for more legislation and regulation in the crypto space overall. Here's what Marty Chavez, vice chair and partner at Sixth Street, and recently appointed as a member of the Alphabet Board, had to say about that earlier on Bloomberg Television.
1: Regrettably, we usually wait until some calamity uh, before there is regulation. Mm -hmm. And the question's always, Um, Was this calamity big enough? Or does there need to be another leg down uh, before we have the appropriate regulation?
2: My next guest who joins us now, Sheila Warren, is the CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation and she founded the World Economic Forum's blockchain and digital assets team. So Sheila, look, there've been a lot of big red flags, Celsius, three arrows. You heard what Marty Chavez said there about regulation. Are we behind? Or are we waiting for a calamity?
10: know that we're waiting for a calamity. I find that a bit dramatic. I mean, I think we've seen a number of cycles and waves in this industry. I've been in this space for seven years now, and this is not the first time we've seen a big crash followed by a pretty quick rally. And I think you're, Hannah mentioned earlier that we are starting to see a little bit of that rally start to happen and more consumer confidence in these alternative assets. So, So I don't know that anyone's waiting for a calamity. I think there's been enough uh, attention this industry I would say unduly placed in some cases in this industry and skepticism around it that I think there's been a lot of attention you know, already paid
2: what do you think is driving this rally and how long does it last I mean it just seems <laughs> to be bad news everywhere else when it comes to the economy
10: Well, I think that's right. I think we're part of a, a, there's a broader market meltdown happening. And I actually think it's pretty profound that you're seeing these individual coins that are starting to kind of turn around and, and, uh, And pick up a little bit. So, you know, Ethereum. I think Hannah Hannah nailed it. I think it really is about the merge. It's the idea that this has been waiting a long time coming. You know, people have been talking about the merge since Ethereum was first launched, and the idea that there could be this transition from what's called proof of stake to proof of from proof of work rather to proof of stake. Uh, I should note that is a 99.95 percent reduction in the use of energy. It's not just a 10 percent or 2 percent reduction. It's a massive reduction in energy. And energy has been a big talking point for. Some folks in this space. So I do think people are excited to see not even so much about the energy usage, but the fact that this major technology change can be achieved. Uh, it's complicated. It's really hard to do. The details and, the, and building these systems are, are so complex. But here we are for the first time really seeing this massive change in the way that infrastructure is going to run. But I think it's kind of proof that, you know, you give it time, these things are going to thrive. I have to ask you
2: then about the, the, these comments that we got last week from the founder of Tezos, who you know, basically called Ethereum a giant Ponzi scheme. I mean, you've got major skeptics, not just outside the industry, but inside the industry who
10: don't believe in it. So I think one thing that's important to note about crypto is it tends to be pretty tribal. So you do have folks that have (laughs) kind of picked their token, they've picked their team, and they're gonna talk about their team as being the best team. And look, I mean, we're at a stage of innovation like with any industry. There are a bunch of options. They have some similarities. They have some differences. In some cases, pretty significant differences. And you know, I'm agnostic about this. I don't know. The market's going to decide which of these things winds up being really sticky and taking off, and which doesn't. I think it's natural to have contraction. Natural to have some of these things are going to fail, right? Some are going to grow. So, it's normal to me to see somebody who might be favoring a different opportunity talking about other opportunities with a negative frame. And and I think you'll see that. This happens quite a bit in the industry as people talk about uh, projects that aren't theirs.
2: Tribalism, indeed. Where are you (laughs) on the big debate about whether crypto is is a security or a commodity? Because obviously that has major implications for how all of this is regulated and invested in.
10: Yeah, this is, I think, the debate of the age right now, and you're seeing a lot of activity on the Hill, uh, also with Mika and the European Parliament in Europe about this about this topic as well, kind of defining, like, what is the classification of this asset, which will determine not only who regulates it, but some of the rules of engagement. What are you allowed to do? How onerous are disclosures? When do they happen? You know, all that kind of thing, and will shape the way this really continues to develop. So, so my view is that most things do start off, I think, to some degree uh, in a somewhat centralized fashion simply because you do have a group of people who are engaging um, in that build. But I do think we've seen several that over time have really evolved to be pretty decentralized. Now, the Howey test, which is what determines whether or not something is a security, uh, does have a prong that talks about the engagement of others, right? How much does the activity of uh, one or a group of people really uh, affect uh, the, the effort, their efforts? How does that affect the nature of the build of the project, of the of the price, of all those kinds of things? And in decentralized systems... There's an argument to be made that's really strong that there is not such engagement from any individual or even group that's going to affect uh, the way that the thing tends to, tends to land, tends to grow, tends to be shaped. And so I do right. think we've had a pretty, you know, pretty strong idea of Bitcoin and Ether commodities, other things being developed and, and, and happening right now. But we're going to get to a place I think where more and more decentralization is the, is the norm.
2: All right, well, we will be watching uh, every twist and turn to see how that debate plays out. Crypto Council for Innovation CEO, Sheila Warren. Sheila, great to have you back here on the show. Coming up, Twitter responds to Elon Musk. Oh, and the judge that that was supposed to run this hearing, this big hearing, coming up has COVID. This is Bloomberg. It is a big week for the courts and the integrity of M&A. Twitter has responded to Elon Musk ahead of Tuesday's big hearing. Bloomberg's Jeff Feely joins us now from Wilmington, Delaware, where this hearing will go down. And Jeff, who joins us now on the phone, Elon Musk responded to Twitter suit, saying he needed more time uh, to, to prove his argument in court, that Twitter was trying to rush and obfuscate things. Twitter has now responded to what Elon Musk had to stay. Where do things stand right now?
11: Well, you know, it's just a battle of uh, two sides. Uh, Twitter today basically said that Mr. Musk's uh, arguments that they hadn't turned over enough uh, information on the spam and robot bots within their customer base uh, was, quote, basically irrelevant, an irrelevant sideshow, close quote. That he knew all along how many bots there were and that this is a pretext to walk away um basically we're we're at the stage now where the judge is going to have to decide uh whether to fast track it and you know go for a trial in september or trial in february or somewhere in between
2: now in another twist the judge who's going to run this hearing actually has covid so the hearing, as I understand it was supposed to be in person, is still going to happen, but it's going to be on Zoom. Is that right?
11: Yeah, that's right. We've had a little boomlet down here of the new variant. So judge uh, judge sent a letter out today saying she'd been she'd tested positive. We uh, We're pretty pretty uh, familiar with this. We did We did Zoom hearings for the better part of two years down here, so it'll be fine.
2: So, what exactly is going to happen at this hearing? What will the judge decide?
11: So, Twitter has asked to basically what's called fast track its lawsuit. And, uh, you know, that doesn't give you any specifics in terms of how fast, but it means months rather than years. And Twitter says that every day that passes with the cloud over its shares, is harming the company's value, so that's why they're pushing for a uh, a, a sped-up trial for September 19th. Mr. Musk, on the other hand, says that the case is way too complicated to try to compress uh, discovery, pretrial information exchanges to that kind of uh, uh, period, and it really needs, you know... uh, to be spread out to the trial should be held in February of next year. My suspicion is the judge will come down somewhere between those two um, dates.
2: Hmm. What are experts telling you thus far about whose case is stronger? Quickly.
11: Again, it is it is a question that will be decided by Kathleen McCormick. Many people believe that Twitter holds the stronger hand because uh, Mr. M- Mr. Musk waived uh, due diligence on the bots before he signed the deal. Um, but you just never know things have to develop. Uh, there may be things that we don't know at this point. That's why they have two sides to every court case.
2: Two sides indeed, Jeff Feely, Bloomberg News in Delaware who will be covering this hearing for us. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, As always, we'll stay tuned to your reporting. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, we're going to hear from Gerber Kawasaki, CEO Ross Gerber, big investor in Netflix, and Tesla Hill will help us break down Netflix results. And as always, don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is your tech news briefing for Thursday, July 7th. I'm Zoe Thomas for The Wall Street Journal. Cloud computing has become an essential tool for many businesses. Instead of running their own servers to house their data or provide computing power, companies can buy that storage, as they need it, from cloud providers who maintain massive server centers. This was true before the pandemic, but the last two years have seen a big uptick in the use of cloud computing. And three big companies now dominate the market, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. So how did they cement their grip on the cloud business? And what does it mean for their customers and for their competitors? Joining me to discuss this is WSJ enterprise tech reporter, Aaron Tilley. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we know that the big three players in this field, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google were dominant before the pandemic, but they've gotten bigger over the last few years. So just how big are we talking about and why has this happened?
1: Yeah, so the uh, big three cloud platforms now account for 65% of the $53 billion global market. Um, that's according to Synergy Research Group, and that's up from 52% just four years ago. So a crucial reason why we've seen this kind of growth has really been the pandemic. The pandemic has accelerated the shift to the cloud. A lot of businesses and various organizations, governments have had to shift to the cloud. All their infrastructure was difficult to maintain remotely. They didn't have people on staff to maintain their data centers. In industry parlance, that's on-prem data center. So they had to really shift wholesale to the cloud. And this is something they had been planning but been putting off. So the dominance really accelerated for the big three and their growth really maintained a massive scale through the pandemic and coming out of that, we don't see that slowing down. These sort of migrations to the cloud seem to be continuing at the same pace.
0: You've spoken to some of the smaller players in this industry, though. What do they say their challenges are to trying to compete with these big dominant players?
1: Yeah, so the smaller players, one of the big things they're trying to do is trying to do the best they can at the thing they do. Specialization, that's their way to differentiate from the big cloud platforms trying to do a lot of stuff. So, for example, there's a new company out called Sushi Cloud that's focusing on figuring out how to sell cloud infrastructure that will be more optimized for running artificial intelligence. It'll be cheaper and faster than the big three cloud giants. And there's others like Cloudflare that's offering Uh, lower rates to send your data out of their cloud, which is a huge, huge expense on the top three cloud platforms, something called egress charges, egress fees. So specialization is the differentiation that they're trying to bring to the market. That is their response to the situation.
0: I mean, obviously, if you're competing in any industry against kind of the existing players or the dominant players, you're going to have That challenge, you know, being an up-and-coming company, but are there other specific challenges to operating in the cloud industry that these smaller companies might face?
1: The uh, situation of uh, potential upcoming recession, there is going to be some corporate belt tightening where a lot of customers will want to consolidate on a fewer number of platforms to uh, attain some greater efficiencies, less cost and logistics of managing multiple vendors. So naturally, that's going to further consolidate onto the sort of dominant three platforms companies spending.
0: What have the big three companies said in response to the fact that they've gotten so big during this period?
1: You know, this is a really, for them, a very positive story where these three cloud giants, the cloud is really a success story for all of them. Whereas they might be facing issues like supply chain or declining digital ad markets. The cloud is their growth story for investors. And so for them to continue to see growth at this scale for their cloud business is great news. And they're competing really aggressively against each other which ends up usually really lowering prices for customers. You know, I spoke to customers who really appreciate the kind of competition between the big three, that this naturally, this is all kind of lowering prices for them. So for them, it's all great.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the customer side a little bit because, you know, you mentioned it's lowering costs for them. Are customers at all concerned though, that they have limited choices in this sector?
1: For sure. I think especially in other countries, we see in Europe, there is a growing concern that all their data, all their information, how their digital market works, it's all going to these three US cloud giants. And I think there is an escalating concern around that kind of situation. So we're seeing an emerging pushback in Europe We're seeing some customers get savvy in how they manage between these three cloud giants. Big cloud customers like Walmart, what they're doing is that they're also furthering their investment in their own data center infrastructure. They have these things they call edge networks. They're essentially servers in their own retail stores and and distribution centers so they continue to invest in their own infrastructure meanwhile they're managing between google and microsoft and this is a way for them to kind of attain independence from the cloud giants
0: i mean the other thing that i wonder if there's any pushback on or any concern within these companies is that having more dominance in the cloud sector is coming at a time when they're also under scrutiny for having dominance in other areas. I mean, all of these companies are under some kind of antitrust eye from regulators. So are they concerned that they're getting too big in this sector as well?
1: I think that is a serious concern. We haven't heard much from regulators on this front, especially in the U.S. You know, a lot of the sort of tech backlash that we've seen throughout the world has been focused, like on social media, social media issues, disinformation, mobile app stores. But there is a, I think, growing set of concerns in the cloud. And we see that, again, especially in Europe. In Europe, there have been at least three antitrust complaints lodged against Microsoft for the way their cloud business has been run. So we're seeing inklings of this emerge throughout the world.
0: All right. That was our reporter, Aaron Tilley. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's tech news briefing. If you want more tech stories, check out our website, wsj.com. And if you like our show, please rate and review it. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Zoe Thomas for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening.
12: M&T Bank presents
1: CEOs You Should Know, powered by iHeartMedia.
13: We're talking with Sean Griffith, co-founder and CEO of Disaster Tech. How long have you been in the Washington area, you personally?
12: I've been here since 2009 after I left active duty. Uh, I was a Navy veteran. Uh, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area to work uh, for the U.S. federal government, initially with the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And
13: then how long has uh, Disaster Tech been around?
12: So we've been officially uh, as, a, as an incorporated company since 2019, uh, but we have been around since 2017. We are headquartered here uh, in the D.C. area. We, our office is in Alexandria, Virginia, and Old Town. Oh, I love Old Town,
13: <laughs> except when it floods.
12: Right. Well, that's, that's an issue, and we would love to leverage our platform to uh, help the city of Alexandria and the county understand its risk to flood hazards, especially with climate change.
13: Yeah, because that's kind of right up your alley, you know, if you're a company dealing with, you know, disasters of all types, right?
12: That's correct. We focus on all hazards, floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. Yeah. Anything that's caused problems <laughs> in oh, yeah. communities. Tell us about your company. So Disaster Tech, we have a platform called DICE, which is a decision science platform Providing optimal situational awareness and data management capabilities to mitigate risk for future and current hazards, such as wildfires, floods, and extreme weather. Locally, the metropolitan DC area, as well as the broader region, are at risk from climate change, at risk from floods, from uh, other calamities that affect the area. So, with our data and our uh, open data, as well as proprietary sources, bringing it all together and fusing it. We break down the information silos that has crippled this industry and we accelerate decision-making for emergency managers as well as other professionals and their partners to work together, which is to provide innovative technology that they need for the bottom line, which is saving lives, money, and time.
13: And you, um, I kind of, what, what led you to start this company? Cause you did some of this kind of work in the, in the public
12: sector too, right? I served uh, both first in United States Navy, but then in Washington, D.C. as an emergency manager at the National Institute of Health locally here, where I worked with Montgomery County in the region to prepare for crisis and disasters, as well as at the highest level at the White House. I served on the National Security Council under Presidents Obama and Presidents Trump. I was a career non-political appointee to the White House. And one of my jobs was to help transition the administration from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And what we had done is we ran them through four simulations. One of those simulations was a pandemic of a novel infectious disease. In that room, we had Dr. Fauci and Sylvia Burwell, who's the outgoing secretary of health with the incoming secretary of health and the rest of the team around that table because we know when the inauguration happens, all of the the folks who are leaving uh, expire on, on that date. So you have an incredibly new team which by the way, when uh, the president is sworn in, the cabinet hasn't been confirmed by the Senate. So you have this massive, both institutional uh, drain from the government, as well as the authority that drains with it. And the eight years of muscle memory that the Obama administration, I mean, remember, they went through H1N1, Deepwater Horizon, the Haiti earthquake, Zika, ebola yeah hurricane sandy the list goes on the fires that have been raging in california right so you have eight years of continuity of service and that leaves with that administration so what what the american people have to understand is that there's this huge backstop of civilian workers and military that ensure the continuity of government ensure that we can make it through that administration without missing a beat right But the problem is, is that knowledge, it's that knowledge drain, right? The lack of knowledge or the the knowledge that leaves with an outgoing administration. So one of the things that was illuminating to me when I was going through that transition process is that we don't have a system of record to maintain all of that because the Presidential Records Act, all of that stuff goes into archive, right? Which, Which ends up into the presidential library, right? So if you go to the JFK library, all that stuff that's there right left with that administration so how do we ensure that we have a system of record that when the new administration comes in and the new cabinet and the new heads of agencies come in that they have a knowledge repository that they can lean on to inform their decision making right and i'll give you an anecdote of this so in 2016 hurricane michael happened when that happened we waived the jones act okay come the trump administration Fast forward one year later in 2017, Hurricanes Irma and Maria, we were all running around the room trying to figure out how do we engage with the Jones Act? Right? And that just delayed the decision making, which did what? Impacts the survivors negatively because we can't deliver the relief that is required to assist those people that we were either elected or signed up to serve, right? So it's our goal at Disaster Tech to provide technologies to do what, resolve governance challenges. Because we don't have a technology problem in this country. We are blessed with the most technology on the earth. We have so much capacity, technological capacity, but it has not been harnessed for resolving governance challenges. Government is way behind. And it's our goal within our industry, which is disasters, to bring technology to the forefront, to ensure that the most vulnerable in the communities can get the assistance that they need and be back on their feet again. And even better, in a more resilient position where we can reduce risk both ahead of time as well as to ensure that when something happens that the blow isn't as big, right? That the house still stands when when the tornado leaves or when, when the earthquake ends. We want to ensure that the technology can inform that risk decision-making and that investment, so we're not just throwing money at the problem, that we're actually gaining the $1 spent in mitigation and a $6 return. And I remember a company called FM Global, which is an insurance company made up of engineers. They were getting $1 spent in mitigation, $104 in return. Think about the savings, how much money we spent in this pandemic. All of these deaths were preventable. This was a preventable pandemic, yeah. but we did not prevent it, and we lost too many Americans in the process. Yeah. Now, never again uh, is, is what I say, but it's the failure to imagine, right? It's our failure to have imagination, which is exactly what they said in the 9-11 report. It was our failure of imagination that caught us off guard where we weren't prepared. We weren't ready for the threat, for the risk. We have to be because the, the loss in lives and economic loss is untenable. And I want to say that uh, we, we can do this, right? This, we don't have to be paralyzed by the risk. This is solvable. It's a governance challenge. It's up to us as humans to work together to collaborate uh, with the whole community and not window dress, not just say we're gonna be working with the whole community actually have a table where people can sit at where we can listen and learn from those people who are residing in the communities who are experiencing the vulnerabilities and the inequities they need to be the ones driving the conversation it can't be a thousand mile screwdriver from washington dc in the beltway Right. right we're all sitting around the table with blinders on where the people who are affected aren't actually at the table right so one of our goals at disaster tech is to democratize the data, democratize the technology, and democratize the software so those, the crowd, the citizen scientists, can leverage powerful technology to reduce risks in their own backyard.
13: So the pandemic is sort of winding down, but uh, I'm assuming there's been a lot learned. And would I be right in saying that Disaster Tech would be the kind of company that would help the government... If this were to happen again, especially if it were to happen again at a, after, with a different administration in Washington.
12: Well, that's correct. But again, disasters are by design. We, the people create the disasters, not the other way around. It's preventable. We want to work with the government as well as their private companies. You look at the cyber attack that happened in the colonial pipeline, that's private infrastructure, right? And the government accountability office came out with a study that said, well, The federal government needs better partnership and better connection with private industry. We have been doing that. We have been doing that. But the problem is, is that the technology solutions and the platforms to allow the colonial pipeline operators and leadership work with the federal government, it's all on a phone call. It's all an email. It's slow and it's late for need. But again, that's not... That's not an issue of technology. That's purely an issue of governance. We have the technology solutions that we can allow asset owners and operators in private industry, as well as the government to work together to reduce risk to these threats and hazards, as well as work together and coordinate when something happens to accelerate the restoration and recovery and shorten that time where people are suffering.
13: Wow. That, that, that's um... That's a lot to digest, but it, it, it's, um, it it's a necessary thing. That, and I'm surprised in a way that that government, it, well, the whole transition thing that you mentioned. I mean, we see that in the news and we know that there's a transition between administrations. Um, but uh, I think the way you've painted the picture here, it's like I had not really thought about just how much of a an abrupt change it can be if there isn't a, a good continuity
12: there. That's correct. And Congress did... Uh, do us a favor with the Presidential Transition Act of 2015 in which they mandated this transition exercise to occur where we had the baton handoff between one administration to the next to say, here's what we learned the last eight or four years. This is our perspectives. We're all Americans. We need to transfer this knowledge to benefit the next. Whether they're Democrats, Republicans, independents, it doesn't matter. Again, we're all there to serve the whole of the American people. Not a pop segment of the population of the American people, all American people. And we again, we must leverage technology, we must leverage these solutions to ensure that continuity of knowledge. Right? If I can go on Google and look up how to buy anything or go on to Amazon and buy anything, and literally the same day Prime will deliver, you know, ice cream to my door, well. It ought to be that government and civil servants, the folks who serve every day, have the same access uh, to that technology to be able to deliver the services that they were sworn uh, to do. And so, again, I go back to this. This is not an issue of, of technology. It's a governance problem. And I think most people are surprised. Uh, sometimes they assume, hey, well, government's doing this or taking care of that when it's not actually being taken care of. right? So. My, my message to anyone is to say, get more involved. This is a democracy. It's your vote, not somebody else's. Get more involved, get engaged, you know, understand, ask questions of your local electives, of the folks who are working in those buildings saying, what do you actually do every day? And can I learn more about it? Because I wanna help influence and shape policymaking. I wanna help and influence and shape the types of solutions and services that are delivered to our communities. And I think, unfortunately, there's been less of a table to sit at, right? The table is very short. We tend to be myopic within the beltway. We don't invite a lot of folks in to be part of that conversation, that decision-making, uh, but, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. And you know, the one thing that I really appreciate about the power of social networks in the crowd is it, it extends the bench infinitely, right? Anyone can get onto social media platforms we just have to have a better way of engaging to ensure that the folks who are governing, who are making these critical decisions, that's going to affect your life and my life, the reasons why we pay taxes. But there has to be a better way to engage in a way that it's not, you know, stuck in the 19th century, I hate to say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all paper. It's all paper. Mm-hmm. It's all process driven. And that's fine to an extent because you need an audit trail. But we have to have a better way a more digitized a more gamified, frankly, way of having citizen engagement with the folks who are governing to make better decisions. And certainly in our industry, it's about disaster risk. And as we know, disasters are happening more and more, more frequently because of climate change, because of the acceleration of these storms, more flooding, more rain and so forth. And if it's not happening in community, unfortunately, it will. But we don't have to be paralyzed by the risk. We can work together as a community to understand the environment, to help shape it, both the natural and built environment, and also to work with these electeds so that we can get the right type of investment to ensure that we have the resources necessary to bring down risk. And to build resilient communities.
13: Well, Sean, this is a, CEOs you should know, and I know you you, you want to talk mostly about your company, but tell us something about you too. Uh, yeah, I think you've already said you're a, a navy Navy veteran, but uh, tell us tell us some more.
12: Well, I am a proud father. I have two sons uh, that are five and nine, and uh, they are the love of my life. So uh, outside of work, uh, that's my focus. And the fun thing is that my son recently got into guitar. I'm a guitar player. And so it's going to be a lot of fun, uh, helping him learn how to play and, uh, and working with him to increase his skills, but he loves music. And, um, and my young, all my sons love music. And, um, that that's what I do with my free time. So
13: nice. (laughs) Oh, maybe someday they'll have uh, music on one of our radio stations.
12: That's true. I mean, uh, they would love to. They they're very into rock and roll and blues, and uh, actually more of the '70s and '80s stuff, which is a little surprising. And it's interesting because my oldest son found that on his own. You know, it wasn't my influence. Yeah. Although I play it, but uh, but yeah, hopefully one day he'll become. Uh, a rock star and be on iHeartRadio. <laughs> <Yep. laughs>
13: Sounds good. Well, basically, our, our, Sean, our last question is, is there any additional information you'd like our audiences to know about, uh, about disaster tech?
12: Disaster tech is a better known small business comprised of highly talented team of engineers, practitioners, scientists, and academics. At disaster tech, we work hard to provide our community, the users, the people, with the most advanced disaster preparedness, response and resilience tools. If you're interested in learning more about our company, please reach out to us at community at disastertech.com and we'd love to uh, work with you at any time. And you can also visit our website at disastertech.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Disaster Tech
13: Sean Griffith, co-founder and CEO of Disaster Tech. Great talking with you
12: have a wonderful day and
13: rest of your week thanks you too take care our community partner m&t bank supports ceos you should know as part of their ongoing commitment to building strong communities and that starts by backing the businesses within them as a bank for communities m&t believes in dedicating time talent and resources to help local business thrive because when businesses
12: succeed our communities succeed